0: Thanks, Mark. I'll have to see what happens in the rest of the reading. Uh, Let's pray together as we look at God's Word this morning. Lord God, thanks so much for your Word, for bringing us together as your people, uh, for speaking to us and showing us the way you've acted throughout history. We ask that as we look at what you've done and the way you've worked, that you would shape our view of your world and the way we relate to it through your eyes, that you might strengthen us and grow us by your Spirit and in your Word this morning pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed, but lately I keep hearing lots of calls to unite. Society around us, uh, the media, keep kind of telling us we need to unite. On the corner of my street, I have this be kind kind of command spoken to me every time I drive down our road, which I noticed that an insurance company took a photo of and used it on an ad on TV saying be kind. Obviously, they want to keep, you know, not pay out, so they make money off us. Because if you're kind, you're not going to have accidents, right? Well, maybe not. But I keep hearing these calls to unite, unite around all sorts of issues, whether it be social issues, uh, ideas of what we can and can't do with our bodies, ideas around people, join this party, join that party, be be part of this thing, be part of that thing, or or uniting around ideas. I feel like there's lots of people calling us to unity, and at face value, it seems like a warm and, and generous call, doesn't it, to, yes, we should be united, unity is a good thing. And often, I think it has generous and warm intentions. But a call to unity is actually a call to submission. I don't know if you've thought about that. It's a call to be the same, to submit to one person's view or another. Every time we hear a call to unite, we're hearing a call to either alter my beliefs and accept another's, or to ask others come in line with mine. The call to unity is a call to submission. The question is, How do we work out who to submit to? As people in this world, how do we work out who we should listen to? I was recently watching the new David Attenborough documentary on Netflix about the earth, amazing cinematography, and it really got me thinking about the way we've been treating the earth. And he has a very big call at the end towards how we should respond given the way the world is and calls the world with his his great knowledge of the kind of natural world to, to live a certain way, eat less meat, only have two kids. He's quite clear at the end, pushing forward these views to say, this is what we need to do. I'm like, oh, it's too late for that. We've got four kids. Right, I don't know what we can do. How do we work out who to submit to? Because we all do submit to people and ideas, don't we? We submit to traffic lights all the time, and it works out well for us if we don't go through the red light. And we submit to road rules, to laws, to bosses' requests. The question is, who do we submit to and how do we work it out? In society's quest for unity, where does God fit in that submission? If there is a God, and I think there is, how does submitting to the governments that are in control fit with submitting to him? For the Apostle Paul, he's been convinced that Jesus was a real man who lived, who died and who rose from the dead. That he's the promised king of of the Jewish faith, the Messiah, who would come to rule and, and be raised to life and live forever. He's convinced that Jesus is God and that Jesus is the king over all creation and the king over you and me. And that really is the most important thing to work out today. Is Jesus really the king over all creation? Because you're going to see the way this plays out in this story all predicates itself on that, on what Paul's doing, on how he's acting. Is Who is Jesus to this man? And if he is the king over all creation... If Paul is right in his claim, then he's your king too, whether you agree with that or not. But it is a decision that Paul became convinced of when he met the risen Jesus. And it's a conclusion that many of us have come to here today and been convinced of. Jesus did live and die and rise again as the scriptures promised. He is God the Son and he will come back to judge the living and the dead and rule the new creation forever. How do we live in the meanwhile with competing authorities and competing calls for unity? What happens when societies disagree with one another? When government disagrees with what God has said? What happens when the governments and authorities make it hard for us? What do we do? What about when they make it easier by providing benefits? Should we accept them? As we get to this next installment in the book of Acts, we see a clash of worldviews, a clash of different religions... And a clash between the sacred and the secular. So come with me. Uh, There's five uh, headlines, five outline points. They all start with gospel. So just write gospel five times and you'll be sweet. Um, And you can just add the one word that follows as we move through. The first one is gospel grit. Where we see here in Acts 21, Paul's gospel grit, G-R-I-T. Paul's just left Miletus and he's farewell the Ephesian elders, uh, these church leaders he'd been with for three and a half years. He's said, keep going, keep running, but I've got to go to Jerusalem. He knew, we saw last week, that he was heading there into massive persecution. Look at what happens next, Acts 21.1. After we tore ourselves away from them, we, we set sail straight for Kos, the next day to Rhodes and from there to Partara. Finding a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded and set sail. After we sighted Cyprus, passing the south of it, we sailed on to Syria, arrived at Tyre, since the ship was to unload its cargo there. We sought out the disciples and stayed there seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So we get this lovely travel log of where Paul's been and the sites they've gone and the direction, showing us these are are real places. These are events that have happened in history. But the interesting thing uh, Luke includes at the end here is that the take of the other Christians, the disciples, not the capital D disciples like the apostles, but those that are with him, those that are following Jesus, they, through the Spirit, told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So all the time, those around Paul have been saying, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be persecuted. And Paul's been saying, no, I've got to go for the spread of the kingdom. I've got to make sure this gospel keeps going out. And you get this interesting thing here where, the Spirit of God speaks through the disciples, kind of helping them to understand what is going to happen, but Paul goes anyway. And that helps us to, to think through just because God reveals something will happen doesn't mean he wants us to avoid it. Just because God reveals something will happen doesn't mean he wants us to avoid it. He wants, in this instance, we're going to see Paul to endure it to go despite of it, to go knowing that suffering will come. And God wants us to know about that, that he knew. Luke makes so clear throughout this, this whole section that Paul knew and he still did it. Paul knew and he still did it. God revealing his plans doesn't mean we ought to avoid them. Now when Paul arrives at Caesarea, Luke tells us he stays at Philip the Evangelist's house and he just says, by the the way, that he has four daughters who all prophesied. We're hearing this this push of God working through people to to tell of what is going to happen, uh, to show what God's plans are. I think Luke is showing us that his intention here is to say everyone is telling Paul what's about to happen. And then the next verse we meet a prophet called Agabus, verse 10. After we'd been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Now, I need to say, this is not normal. I don't want people after church going and stealing one another's belts and tying up their legs and going, let me tell you what God's saying. That's not the way to kind of respond to who God is and what He's done and how He's working in the world around us. This is an instance that happened where there's a visible sign and saying, this is what's going to happen. Again, Luke is making vitally clear how clear God made it that Paul would suffer. So don't try it after church. Then... Look at verse 12, we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. They pleaded with him, don't go, don't go. But Paul doesn't listen. He breaks out almost into a song. I'm I'm pretty sure he reveals the original source of Elton John's song. Don't go breaking my heart. Listen, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? (laughs) Right? That's it. That's where Elton must have been reading. For I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. That's what I've called gospel grit. For he knows what he's walking into and trusts God anyway. He's so captured by who Jesus is and what he's done, so amazed at what is to come, uh, that he's seeing the most important thing in the universe is people come to know Christ. They know him for who he really is and that the gospel keeps going out. That God's name be glorified amongst all other names as the true and living God, that God is king, that Jesus is king. Paul's willing to give up everything. We saw it last week as well. So let me ask, how have you gone in this last week at at living for Jesus in everything? At asking God to help you to see the world as He does, in the way that Paul does? How have you gone at putting Jesus first? Has it changed the way you've prayed this week? Has it changed the way you've thought about your time and your money and your friendships and what you value? So often I think, I hear the Word of God and think, yes, this is good, and then I walk away from Sunday... And I don't necessarily put it into practice. I don't keep thinking through, yes, this is vital for me. I want to encourage you to keep putting this first. To keep thinking through the way Paul lives. Luke spends so much time showing us what his priorities are. Well, from then on, those around Paul, they then display a trust in God as well. Despite the warning God gave them to Paul, or maybe because of the warning God gave them, those around him say this, Acts 21, verse 14. Since Paul would not be persuaded, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. What do they trust? That God would bring about his plans and purposes. God's in control. He's always in control. Even though this suffering is going to happen, they're trusting that God is in control over all God's will will be done. That's such an important concept for us to understand. Despite who we are, against who we are, God will bring about his plans and purposes. No one can change them, can beat God, can arm wrestle him out of it. God will do what God will do. Even though it seemed different to the warning that they were given through the Spirit, they entrusted it to God. And what does Paul do? He displays this gospel grit. He, he, he gets that we're called to live like our master, Jesus, who didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped after, but made himself nothing, became a man in human likeness, humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. So Paul sacrificially and wholeheartedly walks toward gospel proclamation, sharing this news of Jesus and entrusts himself to the God whose will will be done. Do you know how comforting it is to know that as we trust the God who is in control of the universe, he will bring about his plans and purposes? That helps me to put Jesus first, to think, oh, why am I going through this hardship? It would be so much easier if I did this or that, or just pulled back on talking about Jesus, or just made decisions to, to give less to this thing or that thing and just spend it on me. It'd be so much easier. God is in control, realm. He's in control of the universe. He was in control of Paul. You need to therefore be prepared, like Paul was, to suffer. And trust me, just because Paul suffered here doesn't mean we necessarily will. But we need to be prepared to suffer. Are you prepared to suffer? Just because he suffered doesn't mean you necessarily will. But Paul says something a little earlier in the letter of 2 Timothy. He says, in fact, all of those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will God bring suffering into my life? Yes. All those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, you could not live a godly life in Christ Jesus. You could live out of Christ and live like the world around you and not have persecution here and now. But the reality is you'll be still under the judgment of the true and living God. And that lasts a lot longer than the 80, 90, 100 years you and I might get here. No, coming to the King who's died in our place and trusting Him... Oh. It's the wisest decision. It's the most rational decision. It's the decision that God is encouraging us to keep going in. When you feel tired, when you feel like it's hard, trust the Lord's will will be done. We know it will be tiring and hard. But Jesus has died and he's paid for our sin and he's risen again. And he will come back to judge the dead. It's a confronting passage to suffer. But I want you to see also the joy Paul has in living for Jesus. I don't know how he sung, Don't Go Breaking My Heart, but there's a point where he's saying, stop pulling me back. This is what it's on about. Come on, guys, get with the program. This wasn't a horrible drag for him. The benefits of pointing people to Jesus, to living for Jesus, to seeing more and more people experience the forgiveness of Jesus, eclipse any pain and persecution we might experience, he would experience James, Jesus' brother, and the man Paul's about to meet in this story, says it this way. James 1 verse 2. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Friends, gospel grit produces gospel growth. Second heading gospel growth, because the gospel grows people. The news of who Jesus is makes us more and more like him. Paul finally arrives in Jerusalem and they spend a moment, the first thing when he arrives, he arrives with the brothers and sisters in Christ who are there and they celebrate all that God has been doing because the gospel brings growth. Look at verse 18. The following day, Paul went in with us to James and and all the elders were present. After greeting them, Paul reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God and said, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law? They're celebrating what God's been doing. And God hasn't just been working through Paul with the non-Jews in the rest of the kind of non-Jewish world. God's been working amongst the Jews as well, we'll see in a second. And they're all celebrating together. It struck me how often... I struggle to celebrate, where, where there's good things that are going on, but I, I guess because of a sense of wanting to, to appear humble, that you, we don't necessarily celebrate what God's been doing. And our desire for humility and not wanting to be proud, we, we, we can fail to celebrate God, whose name deserves to be praised above every other name. And that's the first thing that happens. Paul comes back and they, this is what went on. This is who came to Christ and, and we saw the gospel go out and these leaders raised up and these churches planted. And they're like, God, you are good. You are so good. We praise God for this. And they share the stories around. Some of them, like Luke, even write them down and it becomes scripture. Right? We have it here because they're celebrating it. The early church celebrated God's work through them. You know, sometimes here at EV, we struggle to get stories of the way God's been working in your lives, not because he hasn't been working in you. He has, but because all of us just feel that little bit uncomfortable. I don't want to go in front of people. I don't want to sit in front of a camera. I don't want to talk about what God's been doing too much. And we think that there's some sense where it's glorifying us. But I want to challenge you to say we ought to keep pointing to God's work in and through us. To stand back and say, this is not me. <laughs> I've done everything against this. This is God growing me. This is God helping me to see the world His way. And so we want to be a church that celebrates. That celebrates the way God is working in us and growing us to be more like His Son. I want to encourage you, if there's anything that God's been doing in you, to share it with others. Not to say, look at me. No, not at all. But to say, look at God. See, everything Paul did, it was something that God did through him. And God deserves the praise for. That's how we know that God is in control of even bringing people to himself. It's not our choice, it's God's, because God is the one who's praised for it. The early church modeled so well what sometimes we struggle with. To celebrate God's goodness and to make that known to the world around us and even to the Christians around to say, look at what God's doing. Let's be a church that celebrates, celebrates God's work amongst us. And again, it wasn't only the work that God had done through Paul, but they also celebrated that many thousands of Jews have believed. They've come to trust Jesus is the promised king. This is exciting. As the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth, and the story of Jesus is to be continued going out and out and further and further. Back in the core, back in Jerusalem, there's still people coming to know Christ. But that provided a problem. See, when the Jewish Christians... And the Gentile Christians, the non-Jewish Christians, hung out They were very different. All sorts of different customs and different ways that they operated. And it kind of caused lots of tension. It's like, you know, you go into a a, a people who are from a different culture and they do differently and they act differently and they eat different types of food. And you shouldn't eat this and you shouldn't eat that. And you're like, oh, I feel very strange here. And it caused this tension in the early church. Culturally, uh, the, the Jews did this ceremonial washing. that they they were kind of consistently doing. They didn't need to do it now as as Christians because Jesus had washed away all their sins and that was something that had been fulfilled in Christ. But it was kind of part of their culture, part of their Jewish way of operating, what they ate and what they didn't, set them apart as as this culture, but not as Christians. And Paul was going around then throughout the Greek world um, telling people that you don't need to do these Jewish laws that are culturally Jewish because Jesus has died and fulfilled it for you. Paul wasn't telling people to be culturally Jewish. He was calling people to trust Jesus as who was a Jew, who had done it all for them. And so he's gone around the, Jew, the, the non-Jewish world and people have come to Christ. And now these, these Gentile Christians and these Jewish Christians, are like, how do, we, how do we work together? And some of them are getting angry because, you know, you want us Jews to stop doing our Jewish things? And you want us Gentiles to become Jewish and get circumcised? What's going on? And so as, they, as Paul comes back into Jerusalem, we read in verse 21, the Jews have been informed about you, that you were teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. So how do we act when there is a clash of culture that is not a gospel clash? That's fine, Paul says, in, a, circumcision is nothing. If you require it, say so it has to happen, well, that's a big issue in Galatians. But if you're saying, yep, you can be circumcised, that's fine. Paul encourages Timothy to be circumcised so he can minister to the Jews well. How do you work this out when there's a clash of culture within these two differing cultures? Well, we need to act with gospel wisdom. Third point, gospel wisdom. In verse 23, they say this, Therefore, Paul, this is the, the church in Jerusalem, do what we tell you. We have four men who have made a vow. Take these men... Purify yourself along with them and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Then everyone will know um, what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law. So what is with the haircut? Like what is going on there? Well, these men have, have seemed to have made some Nazarite type vow, where they've said, are we going to give ourselves to God in service of God? It comes from numbers. Uh, it's this idea that they want to yeah serve God with their all. And so that they kind of shave their heads and say, right, I'm going to serve God in this way. And Paul's come back in, and obviously he's going to come to where the temple is, and he's been amongst the unclean uh, Gentiles. And so Paul would need to be ritually washed. And that's part of that Jewish culture and custom. What they're saying is, it doesn't hurt you in any way to go through these customs yourself. There's no problem with them. They don't cause you to disobey what God has said and see its fulfillment in Christ. So you could go along and say, look, I'm still Jewish I'm a Jew of Jews. And I'm not trying to say that you Jews need to stop doing this. I'm with you. In fact, I'll go through the same purification to enter into the temple, even though I don't need to, but I'm happy to do it. Verse 25, it says, "...with regard to the Gentiles who have believed, this is what they say, "...we've written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, or from sexual immorality." So the Jewish church in Jerusalem had given that letter earlier in Acts 15, to say this is how Gentiles should operate. And so there's, there's wisdom that needs to be applied from the gospel in how we act amongst different cultural areas. They're all to live for Jesus. These things aren't wrong. Jesus fulfills them. It's just you don't want to cause problem in it. So look what happens. Verse 26. The next day... Paul took the men, having purified himself along with them, entered the temple, announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering would be made for each of them. So Paul actually goes through with it. He does this cultural thing, even though he doesn't need to. Now part of me, I don't know, maybe I'm just more rebellious. But I want to go, no, I want to stand on my rights. Do you ever have that moment where you're like, if I don't need to, I'm not going to do it. They can't make me. It's just a cultural thing and Whatever. And so I end up turning things that aren't really that big into bigger things by going, no, because I don't want to be told what to do. Because I hate being told what to do. And there's a sense where I think I often want to stand on my rights rather than what's motivating Paul with his gospel wisdom is to go, this doesn't matter. I want them to see who Jesus is and not cause division among Jew and Gentile Christians. And so he's happy to go through with it. Something wrong with what's happening and it really is a helpful principle for us to understand as we love those around us, understand the different cultural worldviews that people have and not rest on our freedoms. But we also need to be careful because some of those worldviews do come from areas that are against God and so we always must keep serving God central. If it causes me to rebel against Him or do something that is wrong, then no way do we do that. But if it is just a cultural custom and it's nothing, circumcision is nothing, says Paul. Either way, it's fine to serve Jesus. Then we're fine to let it go rather than say, no, I must not do it. Well, listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians 9. Although I'm free from all and not anyone's slave, I've made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law to win those Under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel that I may share in the blessings. We need to think very carefully and biblically about what is cultural and what isn't. What is serving Jesus and what isn't? And what things we ought to require and what things we don't need to require. We can bring in our cultural customs, even as a church. We, you must do this this way or you're a sinner. And we can start pushing things on people, all the freedoms that we have. You know, if, if, you, if you view that Saturday is the Sabbath, which it was, And you go, well, I'm going to take my day off on the Sabbath. Ah, you don't understand the gospel. Well, you're, you're free to take the Sabbath on the Saturday if you want. Christians moved it to the Sunday because of the resurrection of Jesus and encouraged people to enjoy rest in God. But it's neither here nor there. I'm not going to go, oh, you can't do that. And be so legalistic in that sense because Jesus fulfilled the law. And Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We need to think carefully about the cultures that are around us. But the cultures that are around us are calling us at times to say, well, culturally, we must do this. Really? Must we? Now, I serve Jesus because he is king, but I'm free to love those around. I need to, the question about how I respond is a question about how to see the gospel go out. It's a question about gospel wisdom. How may I, I love those around me and not put stumbling blocks in the way so that they think I, I'm saying more than what Jesus requires? Gospel grit produces gospel growth that will result in gospel pain. Gospel pain is our next point. Because people don't want to change. The people then come along when they hear what Paul's doing and he does this and they stir up the crowd. He's done everything right, he's in the temple, but then they kind of get egged on. It was great in the kids' talk. You saw him over here. You know, kill Paul. We hate him. He wants to do all this, he wants to change us from being Jews to being Greeks. Who wants to do that? They really don't care about Jesus. They just care about culture. And that's an issue. They want Paul dead. They say all sorts of lies about Paul, that he brought Greeks into the the Jewish temple, which would have been wrong. That was wrong according to their custom, which he didn't do. And they want him killed. And what's interesting is that in this point, it's actually the religious that are against the Christian, Paul, and the secular, the state, Who saves him? Because what happens is God uses the secular authority, the the Roman state, to save Paul from being killed at this point. Now, here, Paul's in this position where he's like, well, I know Jesus is king over all. But at the moment, he has placed in rulership, in authority, the the government that is in place. And so Paul submits to the authorities because he knows Romans 13, because he wrote it. Romans 13.1, let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. So Paul, at this point, submits. Look at what he does, verse 37 of Acts 21. As he's about to be brought into the barracks, Paul said to the commander, am I allowed to say something to you? And the thing we don't pick up here is he spoke in Greek. Now, it's all in Greek, but the point is he's in Greek and we know it's in Greek because of what the commander replies. You know how to speak Greek. How does this guy who he thought was an Egyptian or someone from that kind of background come to start a revolt know how to speak Greek? And if you really were a Roman or a Greek, you had certain rights that legally you could stand on. Verse 38, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago and led 4,000 men of assassins into the wilderness? Paul said, I'm a Jewish man from Tarsus of Sicilia, a citizen of an important city. Now, I ask you, let me speak to the people. He could have appealed at this moment to say, God is my king. I'm going to do this because God is in control of all. But gospel wisdom means he doesn't. He actually appeals to the authority that's in existence of the authority of the state because there's a helpful way for him to be able to recognize that and speak here and it doesn't cause him to go against what God has done. He recognizes what they do with him at this moment is up to their rules. They could kill him. Now They'd be judged for it when Jesus returns as judge. And they'll actually be called to account, just like the Assyrians were in God's judgment in the Old Testament. And every other nation that's turned against God will be called to account at the end. But here and now, Paul submits to the authorities that are in in authority, where it doesn't cause him to sin. Look at Acts 21.40. After he'd given permission, Paul stood on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people... It was like a wave, I think, something like that, maybe... And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in Aramaic. In the tongue they would have spoken, as kind of as a Hebrew brothers and fathers. Listen now to my defense before you. When they heard he was addressing them in Aramaic, they became even quieter. This guy's one of us. Paul here is using gospel wisdom to think through how to see the gospel go out. Do you see the the centrality of the way he acts isn't what's the right way or the wrong way. There's, I want to serve Jesus and see Jesus as king everywhere. And so I'm going to work in whatever ways I can to point people to recognize who he is and to take out stumbling blocks along the way and also to stay alive. <laughs> he's, using, he's using this kind of wisdom to think through shrewdly how he can have more time to proclaim the gospel. He then talks through uh, what happened to him, his story. And you can read through it yourself a bit later about how uh, the Lord has appeared to him on the road to a mouse. And he uses all sorts of gospel tactics at this moment. And it all goes well until he says that God sent him to the Gentiles. Well, cultural allegiance comes in. People are like, oh, we hate the Gentiles. You can't say we're going to become Gentiles. That was wrong. You're making the Gentiles not like us. And, and that they just flare up again and they want to kill him. They get so angry, some of them at a later point are like, we're not going to eat until Paul's dead. Um, So there you go. So much so that the secular commander says, right, you've got to come with me back to barracks. And the state, God through the state saves Paul. But he goes back to the barracks and then the secular state goes, right, we're going to find out what's really going on here, Paul. And so they go, we're going to flog you. And you're like, okay, what is going on? Now think in the back of your mind. This is what God calls all of us to, to suffer for the spread of the kingdom. Paul's using gospel wisdom to think through how to use the opportunities that are there. But at this point, he's about to get flogged, which the secular commander can do, unless he's a Roman citizen. Verse 25 of chapter 22. As they stretched Paul out for the lash, Paul said to the centurion standing by, is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went and reported it to the commander saying, what are you going to do? This man's a Roman citizen. The commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, Paul says. The commander replied, I bought this citizenship for a large amount of money. He's obviously paid for his citizenship to be a citizen of Rome, which which affords certain rights under that authority. And Paul, he is saying he's a Roman citizen. He's like, how can you afford this? Look at me. I'm the commander and I bought it. How could you do it? Then Paul says, I was born here. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. The commander, too, was alarmed when he realized Paul was a Roman citizen and he bound him. Paul does not appeal at this moment to, I belong to the king of the universe. He says, I belong to Caesar because I was born here. He uses wisdom to think through what will see the most gospel fruit. And that's the way we need to think as well. There's a helpful kind of pattern in the way that Paul acts that we can think through. And then a little later, there's there again. They're still wanting There's this, this uproar. And so what Paul does at that point, you've got all the kind of Jewish people saying, no, this guy's a shocker. And now Paul uses a religious difference. You can read it through later. He sees in the crowd there are Pharisees and Sadducees. Now remember uh, the Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection. Uh, the, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were see, right? I keep saying it, Sadducee. They don't believe in the resurrection. And he recognizes that's what's going on. And so he just says, oh, and and I believe in the resurrection. And suddenly they're so angry, these two religious kind of sects, that they start having to go at one another. And he kind of quietly slips out. It's this great moment of just wisdom, gospel wisdom that he uses. I'm going to call them gospel tactics. Gospel tactics. And that's the last heading. There's a few things we need to pull together in this section that we observe that I think are helpful. Not commands for how we need to act, but recognise... Number one is that we operate under the law before Christ's return, not above it. God has put authority in place and we need to obey them. They really are the authority. Now, they will be held to account. But when Jesus returns, they'll be held to account. And we can use whatever means we can to say that's not right. If there are things that they're doing that that aren't right according to God's law, we can can rebel against it and suffer the consequences like Paul does willingly. Uh, When he says, no, I'm going to proclaim Jesus no matter what. Uh, we obey the law like Paul does, he asks for permission, he speaks and stands, he, he operates within his rights, given by birth, not by God. We need to recognise we operate under the law because God put it in place. Now some will say that because Jesus is king now, we ignore any other pretend king now. But that's not how Paul operates. He willingly submits to, to, to the, the laws that are there that, even, that don't really affect Order and those areas, he uses them both for his good and for, well, he submits where he can. He entrusts himself to God, who is sovereign over all and obeys the law. The second tactic is he's also shrewd, incredibly shrewd. He waits for the right moment to let them know he's a Roman. They're just about to lash him and says, Oh, by the way, can you do that to a Roman citizen? Ah! What have I done? And suddenly, they're in his debt as a Roman citizen. Wise move, thinking through how to do it. He doesn't just have to say everything up front. He waits to the right moment for the greatest gospel effect. He turns the Pharisees and the Sadducees against one another so they've got a bigger argument and forget about him. He uses shrewdness to be able to do that, and that's fine. Sometimes as Christians, we're not shrewd enough. We don't think through the opportunities that are in front of us and run at them. We just stand back and go, oh, well... Paul here is really active in the way he does it with his gospel tactics. We need to be shrewd and not just go along. We need to pray for wisdom and for guidance and sit under the word of God and test everything we're doing against what God has said and use the moments and opportunities God gives us for the spread of his kingdom. Now we do that knowing that what will come with it will be suffering. It will be loss and hardship and pain. We'd love to go, be shrewd because in the end you'll win and it'll be comfortable. Well, it will be when Jesus returns and there's no more mourning or crying or pain. And this short section now, it will be hard. Paul spends in this, in this part of the, this section probably two years in jail. And Luke is outlining this for us. God is telling us this so that we know it will be hard. Life will be hard. So live for God. Be wise. Be shrewd. Use gospel tactics But be ready for it, to stand no matter what, to use whatever God's given you in full dependence on Him. Because the Lord's will will be done. I think we, I, I need to be more ready to suffer. Happily, confidently, walking headlong into whatever is in front of us for the spread of the kingdom. Because in eternity, what faces us now will be so short. At a blink of an eye, gospel grit produces gospel growth, which will result in gospel pain, through which we need gospel wisdom to live with gospel tactics. That's what this letter is showing us, that we might trust God is in control and live for the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the example of the Apostle Paul, for the way he trusts you and has put his life into your hands throughout all of this, and the way that you carry him through. We ask, Father, that as we think through how we might live with our all, that you would help us to serve you in everything. You'd show us where we, where we can move forward trusting you, that we'd walk headlong into the suffering and pain that exists. Not in order to enjoy suffering and pain, but for the heart of the gospel, to see the gospel spread. Lord, help us to keep putting Jesus as king. Pray this in his great name. Amen. Well, um, one of those tactics that we have, um, you guys can just stand here for about five minutes. So, sweet. Um, one of those tactics we have and ways of thinking about reaching out into the world around us is what we've set out in our 2030 vision. And we said that there'd be something exciting that we'd announce today. And that exciting news is that, God willing, we've been able to secure a building, which is pretty exciting. Now, when I say secure, uh, we've secured a price on a building, we have a signed contract. Uh, that we are in a period of due diligence on. And what's being handed out now is a little booklet giving you some more information. Um, What we have is something on loan. Uh, This is a $4.2 million key. It's a pretty cool key because it comes with a building. Uh, But it's only on loan to us because uh, for the next 20 business days, we need to work out as a church how we can fund this building, uh, whether it fits all of our requirements, uh, what what it will do to be able to fit it out and how much it will cost. We've, we've done a number of these things. The news is the building is in Parnell, which everyone's like, "Oh, what does that mean? Um, now, Parnell wasn't one of our first choices, uh, but what's interesting about this building is it's very, very close to the motorway. Uh, it's just off the Strand next to the Saatchi and Saatchi building, so it's a good location. It's easy to get to. It's about 900 meters from the end of the motorway. So you end the motorway on the 16 and just pop off, and you're there. Um, The building will be able to fit, uh, as as we've looked at it with architects, about 450 people in the auditorium, um, which is another 150 people on top of this, which means we can have larger events that are there, and there's room for kids to be able to do kid stuff with some changes that we'll make. Um, It doesn't look particularly amazing as you look at the photos that are in your outline, but we're excited that this might be a gospel training hub that we can use uh, to see the word of Jesus keep going out. But it will require sacrifice and pain. Uh, it'll require some changes in, in where we drive to. Um, you can see our analytics team has given some great data there of what, it, what difference it should make if you live central, east, north, and south. Uh, it's pretty similar. Uh, it's a bit longer if you live central. Um, you can see that. Uh, if you live north, it's a bit shorter. Uh, if you live east, it's a little bit shorter. Uh, if, you, if you live west, it's a, a little bit longer on public transport times. So you can kind of see those differences there with all the times that are outlined. They help you think through whether this is something we really want to run at. We're at a point where we can pull out. We're not stuck in for this building, but we have a signed contract saying they won't move. And if we say yes at the end, it's ours, uh, and we have to pay for it. Um, now, it's $4.2 million, which is a lot. I think, man, that's, that's crazy. Um, to be totally upfront as a church, we have just 200000 put aside in our building fund. And so we go, how do we, how do, we do that? How do we see that move forward? Uh, Was well, a few ways. We're going to talk about that at a special meeting tomorrow night. The uh, meal, the meeting tomorrow night at seven thirty is like a special general meeting for everyone to come along to. It will be in this building, uh, and so we would love you to come along. Uh, car parking should be free on the street, uh, and then there's a couple of Wilson car parks nearby, um, so you can come along and and we'll, we'll try what what it's like to park there. We've we've been doing a lot of research in that. We do need to find some more parking, and we've been chatting with Wilson Parking and seeing where parking within five minutes is. We've made some headway there, which is good. But we'd love to have you come along and hear about how we can move forward toward this opportunity. There's a number of ways you could think through giving money, an annual gift. You might want to think through, yep, how much can we give to this to see it start? Uh, You might have equity in a home that you'd like to think through, how could I release for this? And we can talk through that tomorrow night. Um, Or there might be other ways you could be partnering with us in this. You might know people who have got certain skills. We'd love to hear. And we've made a little form. You can see the link of it uh, at the bottom of of that little outline. Um, AucklandEV.co.nz forward slash building. You can let us know there any ways, any questions you have, any concerns, any comments. Uh, We've got a, a floor plan that an architect's put together. Uh, We're using the same architect that Life Church has used for all their buildings over the last few years. So he knows churches, he's great to deal with, and he's cheap, (laughs) Um, but he's great. Uh, And so if you've got ideas as to how to do this differently, we'd love to hear them. You can kind of print it out and and draw differing ways. We really want to hear from people. Um, But as we move forward, we're going to need to think through creative ways to go, how can we secure this, uh, if it's worth securing and investing in, uh, for the years to come. Now, a gospel training hub a building is not about, wow, look, we've got a building. It's a tool that we think is a wise choice for the spread of the gospel across Auckland and New Zealand for the next 50, 100, 200 years. And the idea is it's a hub where we can be training and equipping people. Uh, it's it's you know, less than 15 minutes walk from the university to be able to run training events. That's quite close in that area it's easy for people to get to if we've got um, campuses across Auckland, north, south, east, west, to drive in for, for those areas. So there's some real advantages to it. The other advantage is actually financial. While it's only you know, four average Auckland houses, uh, which is cheap if you think about the size of it, um, the next cheapest option is, is sort of 3 to $4 million more. As we've been looking, it, this is a strata title, so we can't develop on it. Uh, but that's made it a little bit cheaper and means that actually we could get in, potentially, and use it for what we need it to do, which is a tool for gospel growth. Uh, It is an investment, but that's not why we're buying a building. (laughs) We're buying a building so more people might come to know Jesus. So I want to encourage you today, as we think through what Paul did for the spread of the kingdom, to consider how you might be used with the opportunities, the time, the energy, the skills, the gifts, everything God's given you uh, to see the kingdom go out. That won't be just in this building opportunity, but it it won't exclude it. (laughs) So we'd love you to be thinking through how you could partner in this. Um, the, the kind of entry level we need to raise is about a million a million and a bit. Uh, and that's what we've got to think through over the next month as to how we can see those funds um, work through. So please be praying for that. Please consider that. And we'd love you to come along tomorrow night. There's lots of things for us to work out. We've been going crazy throughout this week trying to pull everything together after they'd finally said yes. We've been working on this building with these people and this vendor Um, since May, maybe even earlier, March. So it's been a long process uh, and lots of thought and time and energy has gone into it. So why don't we pray now and then sing to our God who is in control and trust him for his will is always what happens. Let's sing, let's pray. Lord God, thanks so much for this opportunity that's come so far. Thanks for all the different people that have been involved in seeing it uh, come to this point. We ask for wisdom As we think through how we might see the news of Jesus go out across this city, we ask you to give us wisdom and shrewdness to think through how we might use this opportunity to see more people come to know Christ and grow in Him. We long to see this gospel training hub um, fill churches and cities with pastors and, and people who are eager to spread the news of Jesus across New Zealand and to the ends of the earth. And so we ask that you'd work through us for your glory and for the sake of Jesus' name that more people might know you and we might spend an eternity with them because of the way you've worked in us and through us. Use us, we ask, in your son's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.